Welcome to our new look songs for FRCR Rapids, where we cover short topics all within 15 minutes. That was NSYNC with Tearing Up My Heart. And if you hadn't guessed from that title, the topic today is tearing up of aortic intima, in other words, aortic dissection. We're also covering post-endovascular aneurysm repair leaking and also coarctation of the aorta. So here we go. We're starting with endoleaks. Endoleaks are simply continuous bleeding into an aneurysm sac following an endovascular repair, an EVAR procedure. There are five types and they are very, very common. In fact, up to 40% of endoleaks can occur on the table when they do the angiogram following the procedure. And 20 to 40% occur on later follow-up. There are five types of endoleaks, and if you get a question on this in the exam, they are essentially giving marks away. So here are the five. We'll start with type 1. A type 1 endoleak occurs at the attachment site of the graft, either proximally, in which case it's a 1A, or at the distal end of the graft, making it a 1B. The blood will leak alongside the graft and then trickle into the aneurysmal sac. Usually the reason for a type 1 leak is either they've incorrectly selected the patient or the device, or very rarely the graft itself can migrate. A type 1 endoleak needs to be treated because it will not stop on its own. The treatment involves either an extension cuff or an additional stent at the site of leaking, or embolization with glue or coils. So to recap, a type 1 leak is either a type 1A at the proximal end or a type 1B at the distal end of a graft. It's caused by an inadequate seal, either because the patient or the device has been selected incorrectly, very rarely caused by graft migration. The blood will be leaking alongside the graft, trickling into the aneurysmal sac, and to treat it, you have to treat it because it will not stop on its own. To treat it, you can either apply an extension cuff or an extension stent at the leak site. Unusually, you can also embolize. That's type 1. Type 2 is the most common. 80% of all endoleaks are type 2 endoleaks. And this is when a branch vessel causes retrograde flow into the aneurysmal sac. The vessels responsible are usually lumbar or the inferior mesenteric arteries. And this will resolve spontaneously. You do not have to treat a type 2 endoleak. If there is one vessel causing retrograde flow, that's a 2A. If there are two or more vessels, that's a 2B. 
as I've said, most hospitals adopt a watchful waiting policy for a type 2 endoleak, as the majority will thrombose on their own. If they don't, you may need to embolize the branch vessel if the sac is continuing to expand on follow-up. Next is type 3. Type 3 is mechanical failure of the graft itself, either because the junctions or the components of the graft have come apart, or because there's been a hole or a defect in the fabric of the graft. Type 3 endoleak is either caused by a defective material of the graft, either because these segments are too angulated and don't have an adequate seal, or improper overlap of the segments. Unlike a type 2 endoleak, a type 3 will not stop of its own accord, and this needs immediate treatment. Usually the immediate treatment consists of additional components to the graft. A type 3, like its predecessors, are also divided into A and B. 3A is if it occurs at the junction of the graft components, and a 3B endoleak is if there is a hole or a fracture of the graft fabric. Let's move on to type 4. A type 4 endoleak is where blood leaks through the graft because of the graft's inherent porosity. These usually occur intraoperatively because the fabric itself is porous. You don't need to treat these, and once you stop the anticoagulation, these will stop of their own accord in a few days. And finally, type 5. Type 5 is called endotension, and this is where the aneurysmal sac continues to expand, but you can't find a leak. Treatment for a type 5 endoleak is controversial. They may require further components, they may require extra cuffs or extensions to the graft fabric, or rarely they may need to proceed to an open repair. That's it. Easy peasy, squeezy lemons. Let's recap endoleaks. They are five types of post-EVAR endoleaks. Type 1 occurs at either the proximal type 1A or distal type 1B end of the graft. Caused by an inadequate seal and blood will leak alongside the graft into the aneurysmal sac. You have to fix a type 1. It's not going to stop by itself. You fix it with either an extension cuff or a stent at the leak site. Type 2 is the most common, making up to 80% of post-EVAR endoleaks. A 2A is retrograde filling from one vessel into the aneurysmal sac. A 2B is retrograde filling via two or more vessels. These will stop by themselves. Most hospitals adopt a watchful waiting policy. It's rare that you have to go in to embolize these vessels because the majority will thrombose of their own accord. Type 3 is mechanical failure of the graft as either a hole or a defect, that's a type 3B, or separation of the junctions or the components of the graft, that's a 3A. Like with type 1s, you do have to fix these. Fixing them usually involves adding additional graft components. Type 4 is just a porous graft. This occurs intraoperatively and resolves of its own accord within a few days when you stop anticoagulation. And finally, type 5 is endotension. Sac is getting bigger, but we can't find a bleed. Treatment is controversial, may require additional components or rarely open repair. That's it for endoleaks.
Let's move on now to aortic dissection. And before we talk about dissection, it never hurts to go back to basics a little. So let's start with the three histological layers of the aortic wall. The innermost layer is the intima, then the media and the adventitia. The intima is the innermost layer composed of a basement membrane, connective tissue and smooth muscle cells. Surrounding the intima layer is the media layer. The medial layer is bands of elastin filaments with collagen fibres and smooth muscle cells which provide elasticity to the aortic wall. And finally the adventitia, the outermost layer which consists of collagen fibres and fibroblasts, main function of which is to provide support and structure to the wall. That's a quick recap of basic histology. So what is a dissection? In an aortic dissection, Blood is flowing happily along the aorta, and then a tear in the aortic intima, the innermost layer, allows blood to enter that tear and enter the media layer. The blood, which is under high pressure in the aorta, will then begin to track along the media layer, causing a second blood-filled channel within the aortic wall. That's essentially what an aortic dissection is. Who gets it? In clinical practice, it will be old people with hypertension because these people have degeneration of their tunica media, so they're at high risk anyway. In an exam, it's more likely to be other people that have predisposing factors because exams like rare diseases. So in your exam, the person with aortic dissection will most likely have either a coarcted aorta or a bicuspid aortic valve on a side note, 80% of people with a coarcted aorta also have a bicuspid aortic valve. So those two things go together. Anyhow, back to risk factors for aortic dissection. So we've said all people who are hypertensive in an exam, probably going to be people with either a coarcted aorta, a bicuspid aortic valve, connective tissue diseases, things like Marfan syndrome or Ehlers-Danlos, both of which cause degeneration of the medial layer. Also, Turner syndrome, pregnancy and intraaortic balloon pumps. So any of these people can develop an aortic dissection. How will these patients present? They can either present acutely or chronically, classically with tearing chest pain. Another reason I chose the NSYNC song. They may have a blood pressure difference between both arms the bane of every oncal radiologist. Finally, they may present with end organ ischemia, the precise nature of which depends on where along the aorta the dissection occurs. So in around 30% of patients that do present with end organ ischemia, they might have ischemia of their abdominal organs, limb ischemia, they can have a stroke. If the dissection extends proximally to involve the aortic root, then they may present with something resembling an ST elevation MI. This is really important to differentiate the two because if you treat them for an ST elevation MI, which obviously includes anticoagulation, you can kill them. The last ischemic presentation I want to mention is paraplegia. And this can occur if the dissection involves an artery called the artery of Adam Cubix. It's also called the great anterior radicular medullary artery. And it's important because it's the dominant thoracolumbar segmental artery supplying the spinal cord. This arises from either the 
posterior branch of the intercostal artery, which is a branch of the thoracic aorta, or from the lumbar artery, which obviously comes off the abdominal aorta. The artery then goes off to anastomose with the anterior spinal artery and supplies blood to the spinal cord from around T8 down to the conus. That's the artery of Adam Kuix. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong and I'll spell it for you. Adam as in Adam, K-I-E-W-I-C-Z. It arises on the left in 80% of patients and at the level of the 9th to 12th intercostal arteries. So quick recap, aortic dissection, blood tearing through the intima and forming an extra channel within the media layer. Usually old people with hypertension because they have degeneration of their media layer, but also can be people with structural problems like bicuspid aortic valve, coarcted aorta, connective tissue diseases like Marfan's and Ehlers-Danlos, Turner syndrome, pregnancy and intraaortic balloon pumps. It can be acute or chronic in presentation with tearing chest pain, sometimes a BP difference between the arms and end organ ischemia. Now you need to know how aortic dissections are classified and also what these signs are on imaging. I've mentioned two lumens are created when a dissection occurs. There's the regular aortic lumen, which we call the true lumen, and there's the torn intima and blood running along the media, which is called the false lumen. The two classification systems we commonly use are Stanford and DeBakey. Let's start with Stanford. An aortic dissection is either a Stanford A or a Stanford type B. Stanford type A dissections involve the ascending aorta, easily remembered because it's everything beginning with the letter A. Stanford type A affects the ascending aorta and arch. They account for around 60% of aortic dissections and these require surgery. They may present with occlusion of the coronary arteries. They may also cause bleeding into the pericardial sac and present with cardiac tamponade. But the thing to remember are Stanford A affects the ascending aorta and arch and will need surgery. Stanford type B involves anything distal to the left subclavian artery. Stanford B is all the B's, begins beyond the subclavian. A Stanford type B is less common, around 40% of dissections, and these are generally managed medically with control of blood pressure. That's Stanford, fairly straightforward. DeBakey is also very straightforward. DeBakey is divided into type 1, 2 and 3 and also seeks to separate the ones that need surgery from the ones that don't. A DeBakey type 1 involves the ascending and the descending aorta, which makes it a Stanford A. A DeBakey type 2 involves the ascending aorta only, making it again a Stanford type A. And a DeBakey type 3 involves the descending aorta only. So a DeBakey type 3 starts only after the origin of the left subclavian, which makes it a Stanford type B. To summarise that again, Stanford and DeBakey are the two classification systems I'm sure you already use anyway. But just to remind you, Stanford A and B separate the patients that need surgery from those that don't need surgery. Stanford A 
affects the ascending aorta and arch and require surgery. Stanford type B begins beyond the left subclavian and is usually managed medically. DeBakey is a type 1, 2 or 3. A DeBakey type 1 involves both the ascending and descending aorta. DeBakey type 2 involves the ascending only and DeBakey type 3 involves the descending only. The mnemonic for this is BAD, B-A-D, so both ascending and descending for type 1, 2 and 3 DeBakey. DeBakey 1 and 2 are a Stanford type A dissection and DeBakey 3 is a Stanford type B. Finally, what will you see on imaging? You can start with a plain chest x-ray. On a plain film, we will see the classic widened mediastinum, but this is variable. You may see a double aortic contour. You may see an irregular aortic contour. You can also sometimes see the atherosclerotic calcification of the aorta being displaced inwards more than a centimetre from the aortic margin. Unlikely, but it's a possibility in an exam. So on a plain film, the four main things are a widened mediastinum, a double or an irregular aortic contour, and inward displacement of calcification more than a centimetre from the aortic edge. But we don't care about plain film. No one uses plain film to include or exclude an aortic dissection. What we need is a CT. And what we're going to see on a CT are the following. You will see, or you may see, an intimal flap. You may see a double lumen. You'll see dilatation of the aorta. You may also see something called a Mercedes-Benz sign. The Mercedes-Benz sign is when you see three intimal flaps that have a pattern that looks like the Mercedes-Benz logo. What we think is happening here is a second dissection within the wall of the dissected false lumen. So two of those intimal flaps out of the three belong to the false lumen. Finally, the wind sock sign. The wind sock sign occurs in type A dissections. And what this is is essentially a sort of intersusception between the true and the false dissected lumens. The density of contrast within the lumens is slightly different and this ends up with a distally tapering pattern that looks like a windsock. So the signs on CT to recap, an intimal flap, a double lumen, a big aorta, Mercedes-Benz sign and windsock sign. Finally, no conversation on aortic dissection is complete without mentioning how to differentiate between the true lumen and the false lumen. You'd think it'll be straightforward, but it isn't always, so it's useful to know. Let's start with the true lumen. Remember, this is where the blood is supposed to be, the regular aortic lumen. This is usually pressed by the false lumen and ends up being the smaller of the two. You can often see the calcifications in the aortic wall within the true lumen and you will see the celiac trunk, the SMA and the right renal artery coming off the true lumen. Remember the true lumen, TR, has an R in it so the right renal artery will come off the true lumen. Conversely, the false lumen is usually bigger like I've just said because of these high pressures.
the density of contrast within the false lumen is often also lower compared to the true lumen, which I've already alluded to. That's for obvious reasons, because there is a delay in opacification of the false lumen. If the dissection is chronic, then the false lumen may well be thrombosed. In a Stanford type A, the false lumen will surround the true lumen. And finally, the left renal artery usually arises from the false lumen. So false has an L and the left renal artery arises from the false lumen. There are two additional signs I want to mention which can identify the false lumen. The first is called the beak sign, beak as in a bird's beak. The beak sign, it's the acute angle that you'll see in axial cross sections right at the edge of the false lumen and it's the transverse limit of the dissection where the false lumen is propagating forward. As well as the beak sign, you can identify the false lumen with the cobweb sign. The cobweb sign are thin linear areas of low attenuation, which you get within the false lumen. And that's caused by lots of residual ribbons of the media that haven't completely come away during the dissection. And that's it for true lumen versus false lumen. True lumen is smaller, it has calcifications, and will give rise to the celiac trunk, the SMA, and the right renal artery. False lumen is bigger. It has the beak sign, the cobweb sign, usually of lower contrast density. It might be thrombosed if it's a chronic dissection and gives rise to the left renal artery. So that's it. I am aware that I promised to do aortic dissection, endoleaks, and aortic coarctation. However, I also promise to keep these below 15 minutes, which I've already gone over. So we'll cover coarctation another time. That was it. That was the first Songs for FRCR Rapid. And we'll see you next time.